Chapter 4 The Appearance of Anomaly Challenge to the Shared Map Moral theories necessarily share common features with other theories. One of the most fundamental shared features of theories, in general, is their reliance on extra-theoretical presuppositions. The extra-theoretical presuppositions of explicit moral theorems appear to take implicit form in image and, more fundamentally, in action. Moral behaviors and schemas of valuation arise as a consequence of behavioral interaction undertaken in the social world. Every individual, motivated to regulate his emotions through action, modifies the behavior of others operating in the same environment. The consequence of this mutual modification, operating over time, is the emergence of a stable pattern of behavior designed to match individual and social needs simultaneously. Eventually, this behavioral pattern comes to be coded in image, heralded in narrative, and explicitly represented in words. In the integrated individual, or the integrated state, Action, imagination, and explicit verbal thought are isomorphic. Explicit and image-mediated beliefs and actual behaviors form a coherent unit. Verbal theories of morality, explicit rules, match traditional images of moral behavior, and action undertaken remains in concordance with both. This integrated morality lends predictability to behavior, constitutes the basis for the stable state and helps ensure that emotion remains under control. The emergence of anomaly constitutes a threat to the integrity of the moral tradition governing behavior and evaluation. Strange things or situations can pose a challenge to the structure of a given system of action and related beliefs, can pose such a challenge at comparatively restricted, normal, or broader revolutionary levels of organization. A prolonged drought, for example, destructive at the social level, or the occurrence of a serious illness or disability, destructive at the personal, can force the reconstruction of behavior and the reanalysis of the beliefs that accompany, follow, or underlie such behavior. The appearance of a stranger, or more commonly, a group of strangers, may produce a similar effect. The stranger acts out and holds different beliefs using different implements and concepts. The mere existence of these anomalous beliefs, actions, and tools, generally the consequence of prolonged, complex, and powerful social evolutionary processes, may be sufficient to totally transform or even destroy the culture which encounters them unprepared. Cultures may be upset internally as well as a consequence of the strange idea, or, similarly, by the actions of the revolutionary. The capacity to abstract, to code morality in image and word, has facilitated the communication, comprehension, and development of behavior and behavioral interaction. However, the capacity to abstract has also undermined the stability of moral tradition. Once a procedure has been encapsulated in image, and particularly in word, it becomes easier to modify experimentally, but also easier to casually criticize and discard. This capacity for easy modification is very dangerous, 
in that the explicit and statable moral rules that characterize a given culture tend to exist for reasons that are still implicit and fundamental. The capacity to abstract, which has facilitated the communication of very complex and only partially understood ideas, is therefore also the capacity to undermine the very structure that lends predictability to action and which constrains the a priori meaning of things and situations. Our capacity for abstraction is capable of disrupting our unconscious, that is, imagistic and procedural, social identity, upsetting our emotional stability and undermining our integrity, that is, the isomorphism between our actions, imaginings, and explicit moral theories or codes. Such disruption leaves us vulnerable to possession by simplistic ideologies and susceptible to cynicism, existential despair, and weakness in the face of threat. The ever-expanding human capacity for abstraction, central to human consciousness, has enabled us to produce self-models sufficiently complex and extended to take into account the temporal boundaries of individual life. Myths of the knowledge of good and evil and the fall from paradise represent emergence of this representational capacity in the guise of a historical event. The consequence of this event, that is, the development of self-consciousness, is capacity to represent death and to understand that the possibility of death is part of the unknown. This contamination of anomaly with the possibility of death has dramatically heightened the emotional power and motivational significance of the unknown and led to the production of complex systems of action and belief designed to take that terrible possibility into account. These complex systems of action and belief are religious. They are the traditional means of dealing with the shadow cast on life by knowledge of mortality. Our inability to understand our religious traditions and our consequent conscious denigration of their perspectives dramatically decrease the utility of what they have to offer. We are conscious enough to destabilize our beliefs and our traditional patterns of action, but not conscious enough to understand them. If the reasons for the existence of our traditions were rendered more explicit, however, perhaps we could develop greater intrapsychic and social integrity. The capacity to develop such understanding might help us use our capacity for reason to support rather than destroy the moral systems that discipline and protect us. Introduction The Paradigmatic Structure of the Known The known is a hierarchical structure composed of walls within walls. The individual sits at the middle of a series of concentric rings composed of the integrated personalities of his ancestors nested, at least in the ideal, within the figure of the exploratory hero. The inner walls are dependent for their protection, for their continued existence and validity, on the integrity of the outer walls. The farther out a given wall, the more implicit its structure, that is, the more it is incarnated in behavior and image rather than explicit in word. Furthermore, 
the farther out the wall, the older the personality, the broader range of its applicability, and the greater the magnitude of emotion it holds in check. Groups and individuals may share some levels of the known, but not others. The similarities account for shared group identity, insofar as that exists. The differences for the identification of the other with the forces of chaos. Rituals designed to strengthen group identity hold chaos at bay, but threaten individual identification with the exploratory hero, an identity upon which maintenance of the group ultimately depends. For the sake of the group, therefore, the individual must not be rendered subservient to the group. As the philosopher Ludwig Wittgenstein has it, the aspects of things that are most important for us are hidden because of their simplicity and familiarity. One is unable to notice something because it is always before one's eyes. The real foundations of his inquiry do not strike a man at all, unless that fact has at some time struck him. And this means we fail to be struck by what, once seen, is most striking and powerful. A moral system, a system of culture, necessarily shares features in common with other systems. The most fundamental of the shared features of systems was identified by Kurt Goodell. Goodell's incompleteness theorem demonstrated that any internally consistent and logical system of propositions must necessarily be predicated on assumptions that cannot be proved from within the confines of that system. The philosopher of science, Thomas Kuhn, discussing the progress of science, described similar implicit presumption-ridden systems as paradigmatic. Explicitly scientific paradigmatic systems, the focus of Kuhn's attention, are concerned with the prediction and control of events whose existence can be verified in a particular formal manner and offer, in Kuhn's words, model problems and solutions to a community of practitioners. Pre-experimental thinking, which primarily means moral thinking, thinking about the meaning or significance of events, objects, and behaviors, also appears necessarily characterized by paradigmatic structure. A paradigm is a complex cognitive tool whose use presupposes acceptance of a limited number of axioms, or definitions of what constitutes reality for the purposes of argument and action, whose interactions produce an internally consistent explanatory and predictive structure. Paradigmatic thinking might be described as thinking whose domain has been formally limited, thinking that acts as if some questions have been answered in a final manner. The limitations of the domain, or the answers to the questions, make up the axiomatic statements of the paradigm, which are, according to Kuhn, explicitly formulated, semantically represented according to the argument set forth here, or left implicit, embedded in episodic fantasy or embodied behavior. The validity of the axioms must either be accepted on faith, or at least demonstrated using an approach which is external to the paradigm in question, which amounts to the same thing as faith from a within-the-paradigm perspective. In some regards, a paradigm is like a game. 
play is optional, but once undertaken, must be governed by socially verified rules. These rules cannot be questioned while the game is on, or if they are, that is a different game. Children arguing about how to play football are not playing football. They are engaging instead in a form of philosophy. Paradigmatic thinking allows for comprehension of an infinity of facts through application of a finite system of presuppositions, allows in the final analysis for the limited subject to formulate sufficient provisional understanding of the unlimited experiential object, including the subject. Human culture has, by necessity, a paradigmatic structure, devoted not toward objective description of what is, but to description of the cumulative affective relevance or meaning of what is. The capacity to determine the motivational relevance of an object or situation is dependent, in turn, upon representation of a hypothetically ideal state, conceived in contrast to conceptualization of the present, and upon generation of an action sequence designed to attain that ideal. It is stated, unstated, and unstatable articles of faith that underlie this tripartite representation and that keep the entire process in operation. These articles of faith are axioms of morality, so to speak, some explicit, represented declaratively in image and word, most still implicit, which evolved in the course of human exploration and social organization over the course of hundreds of thousands of years. In their purely implicit states, such axioms are extremely resistant to alteration. Once made partially explicit, however, moral axioms rapidly become subject to endless careful and thoughtful or casual careless debate. Such debate is useful for continuance and extension of adaptation, but also very dangerous, as it is the continued existence of unchallenged moral axioms that keeps the otherwise unbearable significance of events constrained and the possibility for untrammeled action alive. A paradigmatic structure provides for determinate organization of unlimited information according to limited principles. The system of Euclidean geometry provides a classic example. The individual who wishes to generate a desired outcome of behavior as a consequence of the application of Euclidean principles is bound by necessity to accept certain axioms on faith. These axioms follow. Number one, a straight line segment can be drawn joining any two points. Number two, any straight line segment can be extended indefinitely in a straight line. Number three, given any straight line segment, a circle can be drawn having the segment as radius and one end point as center. Number four, all right angles are congruent. Number five, if two lines are drawn which intersect a third in such a way that the sum of the inner angles on one side is less than two right angles, then the two lines inevitably must intersect each other on that side if extended far enough. It is the interaction of each of the five initial postulates, which are all that necessarily have to be remembered or understood for geometry to prove useful, 
that gives rise to the internally consistent and logical Euclidean structure we are all familiar with. What constitutes truth from within the perspective of this structure can be established by reference to these initial postulates. However, the postulates themselves must be accepted. Their validity cannot be demonstrated within the confines of the system. They might be provable from within the confines of another system, however, although the integrity of that system will still remain dependent by necessity on different postulates down to an indeterminate end. The validity of a given structure appears necessarily further predicated on unconscious presuppositions. The presupposition that space has three dimensions in the case of Euclidean geometry, a presupposition which is clearly questionable. It appears in many cases that the assumptions of explicit semantic statements take episodic or imagistic form. The Euclidean postulates, for example, appear to be based upon observable facts, images of the world of experience as interpreted. Euclid grounded his explicit, abstract, semantic system in observable absolutes. It can be concretely demonstrated, for example, that any two points drawn in the sand can be joined by a given line. Repeated illustration of this fact appears acceptably convincing, as does, similarly, empirical demonstration that any straight-line segment can be extended indefinitely in a straight line. These postulates, and the remaining three, cannot be proved from within the confines of geometry itself, but they appear true and will be accepted as such as a consequence of practical example. What this means is that belief in Euclidean presumptions is dependent upon acceptance of practical experience as sufficient certainty. The Euclidean draws a line in the sand, so to speak, and says, the questions stop here. Similarly, it appears that what constitutes truth from the episodic perspective is predicated upon acceptance of the validity and sufficiency of specific procedural operations. How a thing is represented in episodic memory, for example, which is what a thing is insofar as we know what it is, appears dependent upon how it was investigated and on the implicit presuppositions driving or limiting the behavioral strategies applied to it in the course of creative exploration. Thomas Kuhn states, Scientists can agree that a Newton, Lavoisier, Maxwell, or Einstein has produced an apparently permanent solution to a group of outstanding problems and still disagree, sometimes without being aware of it, about the particular abstract characteristics that make those solutions permanent. They can, that is, agree in their identification of a paradigm, without agreeing on or even attempting to produce a full interpretation or rationalization of it. Lack of a standard interpretation or of an agreed reduction to rules will not prevent a paradigm from guiding research. Normal science can be determined in part by the direct inspection of paradigms, a process that is often aided by but does not depend upon the formulation of rules and assumptions. Indeed, the existence of a paradigm need not even imply that any full set of rules exists. Kuhn continues in a footnote. 
Michael Polyani has brilliantly developed a very similar theme, arguing that much of the scientist's success depends upon tacit knowledge, i.e., upon knowledge that is acquired through practice and that cannot be articulated explicitly. The Euclidean draws a line connecting two points in the sand and accepts on faith the sufficiency of that behavioral demonstration and the evident certainty of its outcome, in part because no alternative conceptualization can presently be imagined. Euclidean geometry worked and was considered complete for centuries because it allowed for the prediction and control of all those experienceable phenomena that arose as a consequence of human activity, limited in its domain by past behavioral capacity. Two hundred years ago, we did not know how to act concretely or think abstractly in a manner that would produce some situation whose nature could not be described by Euclid. That is no longer the case. Many alternative and more inclusive geometries have been generated during the course of the last century. These new systems describe the nature of reality, the phenomena that emerge as a consequence of ongoing behavior, more completely. All representations of objects, or situations, or behavioral sequences are, of course, conditional, because they may be altered unpredictably or even transformed entirely as a consequence of further exploration, or because of some spontaneous anomaly emergence. The anxiety-inhibiting, goal-specifying model of the object of experience is therefore inevitably contingent, dependent for its validity on the maintenance of those invisible conditions which applied and those unidentified contexts which were relevant when the information was originally generated. Knowledge is mutable in consequence, as Nietzsche observed. There are still harmless self-observers who believe that there are immediate certainties, for example, I think, or as the superstition of Schopenhauer put it, I will, as though knowledge here got hold of its object purely and nakedly as the thing in itself, without any falsification on the part of either the subject or the object. But that immediate certainty, as well as absolute knowledge and the thing in itself, involve a contradictio in adjecto. I shall repeat a hundred times, we really ought to free ourselves from the seduction of words. Let the people suppose that knowledge means knowing things entirely. The philosopher must say to himself, when I analyze the process that is expressed in the sentence, I think, I find a whole series of daring assertions that would be difficult, perhaps impossible, to prove. For example, that it is I who think, that there must necessarily be something that thinks, that thinking is an activity and operation on the part of a being who is thought of as a cause, that there is an ego, and finally, that it is already determined what is to be designated by thinking, that I know what thinking is. For, if I had not already decided within myself what it is, by what standard could I determine whether that which is just happening is not perhaps willing or feeling? In short, the assertion, I think, 
assumes that I compare my state at the present moment with other states of myself which I know in order to determine what it is. On account of this retrospective connection with further knowledge, it has at any rate no immediate certainty for me. In place of the immediate certainty in which the people may believe in the case at hand, the philosopher thus finds a series of metaphysical questions presented to him, truly searching questions of the intellect, to wit. From where do I get the concept of thinking? Why do I believe in cause and effect? What gives me the right to speak of an ego, and even of an ego as a cause, and finally, of an ego as the cause of thought? Whoever ventures to answer these metaphysical questions at once by an appeal to a sort of intuitive perception, like the person who says, I think and know that this, at least, is true, actual, and certain, will encounter a smile and two question marks from a philosopher nowadays. Sir, the philosopher will perhaps give him to understand, it is improbable that you are not mistaken. But why insist on the truth? The object always remains something capable of transcending the bounds of its representation. It is something that inevitably retains its mysterious essence, its connection with the unknown, and its potential for the inspiration of hope and fear. The actual or transcendent object, in and of itself, insofar as such a thing can be considered, is the sum total of its explored properties, plus that which remains unexplored, the unknown itself. Our understanding of a given phenomenon is always limited by the temporal, economic, and technological resources that we have at our disposal. Knowledge is necessarily contingent, although it is neither less objective, necessarily, nor less knowledge because of that. Our representations of objects, or situations, or behavioral sequences are currently accepted as valid because they serve their purposes as tools. If we can manipulate our models in imagination, apply the solutions so generated to the real world, and produce the outcome desired, we presume that our understanding is valid and sufficient. It isn't until we do something and produce an unexpected outcome that our models are deemed insufficient. This means that our current representations of a given phenomena are predicated on the implicit presumption that sufficient exploration of that phenomena has taken place. Sufficient exploration is a judgment rendered as a consequence of a sequence of action attaining its desired end. What works is true. A procedure is deemed sufficient when it attains its desired end, when it meets its goal. The nature of that goal, archetypally, is establishment of, or movement toward, a paradisal state characterized by stable, dynamic relief from unbearable suffering, freedom from paralyzing anxiety, abundance of hope, and bountiful provision of primary reward. The peaceful land of milk and honey in mythical language. This is merely to say that knowledge serves the ends of life rather than existing in and of itself. Some contingent forms of knowledge, 
behaviors say and schemas of value prove of lasting worth, producing the desired outcome across a broad range of contexts. These are remembered, stored in ritual and myth, and transmitted down the generations. Over the course of time, they become integrated with all other extant behaviors and schemas of value in a hierarchy that allows for their various expression. This hierarchy, as described previously, is composed of the actions and valuations of past heroes, organized by other heroes into a stable social character, shared by all members of the same culture. As the Christian Church, for example, constitutes the symbolic body of Christ. This hierarchy has been and currently is shaped by endless loops of affective feedback as the means and goals chosen by each individual and the society at large are modified by the actions and reactions of society and the eternally ineradicable presence of the unknown itself. The resultant hierarchy of motivation can be most accurately characterized as a personality, the mythic ancestral figure that everyone imitates consciously, with full participation of the semantic and episodic system, rational thought and imagination, or unconsciously, in action only, despite expressed disbelief. The hierarchically structured behavioral pattern, personality, that constitutes culture comes with the passage of time to be represented secondarily, isomorphically, in episodic memory, and then coded explicitly insofar as current cognitive development makes that possible. The explicit moral code is therefore predicated upon presumptions which are valid purely from the episodic perspective. In turn, these episodic representations derive their validity from procedural knowledge designed to meet affective requirements in the social community and in the presence of the unknown. A moral philosophy, which is a pattern for behavior and interpretation, is therefore dependent for its existence upon a mythology, which is a collection of images of behaviors which emerge in turn as a consequence of social interaction cooperation and competition designed to meet emotional demands. These demands take on what is essentially a universally constant and limited form as a consequence of their innate psychobiological basis and the social expression of that basis. Hence, as implied previously, the limited forms of myth. Northrop Fry states in this regard, I should distinguish primary and secondary concern, even though there is no real boundary line between them. Secondary concerns arise from the social contract and include patriotic and other attachments of loyalty, religious beliefs, and class-conditioned attitudes and behaviors. They develop from the ideological aspect of myth and consequently tend to be directly expressed in ideological prose language. In the mythical stage, they often accompany a ritual. Such a ritual may be designed, for example, to impress on a boy that he is to be admitted to the society of men in a ritual for men only, that he belongs to this tribe or group and not that one, a fact which will probably determine the nature of his marriage, that these and not those are his special totems or tutelary deities.
primary concerns may be considered in four main areas. Food and drink, along with related bodily needs. Sex, property, i.e. money, possessions, shelter, clothing, and everything that constitutes property in the sense of what is proper to one's own life. Liberty of movement. The general object of primary concern is expressed in the biblical phrase, life more abundantly. In origin, primary concerns are not individual or social in reference so much as generic, anterior to the conflicting claims of the singular and the plural. But as society develops, they become the claims of the individual body as distinct from those of the body politic. A famine is a social problem, but only the individual starves. So a sustained attempt to express primary concerns can develop only in societies where the sense of individuality has also developed. The axioms of primary concerns are the simplest and baldest platitudes it is possible to formulate. That life is better than death, happiness better than misery, health better than sickness, freedom better than bondage for all people without significant exception. What we have been calling ideologies are closely linked to secondary concerns and in large measure consist of rationalizations of them. And the longer we look at myths or storytelling patterns, the more clearly their links with primary concerns stand out. This rooting of poetic myth in primary concern accounts for the fact that mythical themes, as distinct from individual myths or stories, are limited in number. The explicit moral code is validated by reference to the religious mythic narrative. The narrative is primarily episodic representation of behavioral tradition. The tradition emerges as a consequence of individual adaptation to the demands of natural conditions, manifest universally in emotion generated in a social context. The episodic representation, which is representation of the outcome of a procedure and the procedure itself, is predicated upon belief in the sufficiency and validity of that procedure. More subtly, it has the same structure at least insofar as it is an accurate representation of behavior, and therefore contains the implicit hierarchical structure of historically determined procedural knowledge in more explicit form. Over lengthy historical periods, therefore, the image ever more accurately encapsulates the behavior, and stories find their compelling essential form with regard to the process underlying construction of the Old and New Testaments, Fry states, The Bible's literary unity is a byproduct of something else. We might call it an unconscious byproduct if we knew anything at all about the mental processes involved. The earlier part of the Old Testament, with its references to the book of Jasher and the like, gives the effect of having distilled and fermented a rich poetic literature to extract a different kind of verbal essence. And on a smaller scale, the same process can be seen in the New Testament. The editorial work done on this earlier poetic material was not an attempt to reduce it from poetry to a kind of plain prose sense, assuming that there is such a thing. 
This kind of sense implies a direct appeal to credulity, to the infantilism which is so exasperating a feature of popular religious and other ideologies. What we have is rather an absorption of a poetic and mythic presentation that takes us past myth to something else. In doing so, it will elude those who assume that myth means only something that did not happen. The second-order semantic or verbal codification is grounded in the episodic or imagistic representation, tends over time to duplicate the hierarchical structure of that representation, and is predicated upon acceptance of the validity of the procedural and episodic memories. Semantic, episodic, and procedural contents therefore share in the intrapsychically integrated, conscious, or psychologically healthy individual identical hierarchical structure in their respective forms of action or representation. This integrated morality lends predictability to individual and interpersonal behavior, constitutes the basis for the stable state, and helps ensure that emotion remains controlled and regulated. Figure 47 the paradigmatic structure of the known presents the personality of a typical Western individual, in this case, a middle-class businessman and father. The father and husband is nested inside the middle-class businessman. That, in turn, is nested inside the capitalist personality, the American personality, the humanistic Western personality, and then, above even that, the Judeo-Christian personality and the exploratory hero. The middle-class businessman and father's individual life is therefore nested within an increasingly transpersonal, shared personality with deep, increasingly implicit historical roots. The smaller stories, nested within the larger, are dependent for their continued utility on maintenance of the larger, as the middle-class family, for example, is dependent for its economic stability on the capitalist system, as the capitalist system is nested in humanistic Western thought, as humanism is dependent on the notion of the inherent value of the individual, on the notion of individual rights, and as the inherent value of the individual is dependent on his association or ritual identification with the exploratory communicative hero. The more encompassing outer levels of organization may be extant purely in behavior. That is, the individual in question may have little or no explicit imagistic or semantic knowledge of his historical roots, although he still acts out a historically conditioned personality. It is certainly possible as well, and is increasingly the norm, for an individual to deny explicit belief in the validity of the Judeo-Christian ethic or the existence of any transpersonal exploratory hero whatsoever. This denial, at the explicit verbalizable level of consciousness, merely interferes with the integrity of the personality in question. The procedural aspect that largely constitutes Judeo-Christian belief, for example, and even ritual identification with the hero to some degree, the imitation of Christ, almost inevitably remains intact 
at least in the case of the respectable citizen. The modern, educated individual therefore acts out, but does not believe. It might be said that the lack of isomorphism between explicit abstract self-representation and actions undertaken in reality makes for substantial existential confusion and for susceptibility to sudden dominance by any ideology providing a more complete explanation. Equally, or even more troublesome, is the tendency of lack of explicit belief to manifest itself slowly in alteration of imagistic representation and behavior as ideas change actions over time, and to invisibly undermine intrapsychic and social stability. Groups and individuals may differ in their goals, values, and behaviors at one level of analysis, while sharing features in common at higher, more implicit levels. Figure 48, the known, nested groups and individuals, portrays three such groups. This number is arbitrary. Catholic, Protestant, and Orthodox Christians, for example, might all be regarded as enveloped by their participation in the Judeo-Christian personality. Although they may well fight among themselves at the drop of a hat within the confines of that personality, they are liable to eagerly join forces to eliminate a threat, real or perceived, from Jews or Muslims. Within each of these three groups, there are going to be differences and similarities as well. Each community of believers is likely to have its separate sects, separated from one another by a certain historical duration, and the alterations in value structure and behavior that accompany such divergence. Finally, individuals within groups will diverge too, according to their individual interests and idiosyncratic beliefs. Paradoxically, it is fidelity to these individual characteristics that most truly unites all persons in worship of the exploratory hero. This means that the innermost level of personality organization, that aspect which is truly unique rather than shared, is also the outer level upon which the stability of the entire structure depends. The emergence of anomaly the re-emergence of the Great Mother, constitutes a threat to the integrity of the moral tradition governing behavior and evaluation. It is for this reason that adjustment to anomaly in the many mythologically equivalent forms it takes is frequently resisted passively by failure to take it into account and aggressively by attempts to eradicate its source. Anomalies may have their effect at different levels, as we have seen. The most profound threats undermine the stability of the personalities that encompass the largest number of people, have the deepest historical roots, are most completely grounded in image and behavior, are most broadly applicable regardless of situation, cover the largest possible span of time and space. We seem aware, in some sense, of the danger of profound anomalies, perhaps because a substantial amount of negative emotion and abstract cognitive consideration can be elicited merely through positing their possibility. What if we were truly threatened by the foreign devils? 
our tendency to personally identify with our respective countries, say, to foster and be proud of our patriotism, reflects knowledge that our personal integrity and security is integrally bound up, for better or worse, with the destiny of our cultures. We are therefore motivated to protect those cultures, to defend our societies and ourselves against the return of the terrible dragon of chaos. It is frequently the case, however, that our attempts to bolster the security of part of our protective identity undermine our stability at a higher order of being. The American, British, Russian, Chinese way of life, for example, is a more visible and less personally demanding figure than the exploratory hero, although it is also a less critically important part of our core cultural and personal identities. This means that attempts to increase the strength of the state at the cost of the individual are counterproductive, even though they may serve to heighten the sense of order and regulate emotion in the short term. Patriotism, or any similar attempt at strengthening group identity, must necessarily be bounded by supreme regard for the creative capacity of the individual. The individual is protected from chaos in its full manifestation by the many walls that surround him. All the space outside a given wall, however, despite its probable encapsulation by additional protective structures, appears relatively dangerous to anyone currently within that wall. All outside territory evokes fear. This equivalence does not mean, however, that all threats are equivalently potent, just that anything outside shares the capacity to frighten or enlighten anything inside. Challenges posed to the highest levels of order are clearly the most profound and are likely to engender the most thorough reactions. Observation of response to such threats may be complicated, however, by the problem of time frame. Challenge posed to extremely implicit personalities may evoke reactions that extend over centuries in the form of abstract exploration and argumentation, revision of action, and war between opposing alternative viewpoints, as in the case, for example, of the Catholic and Protestant Christians. The fact that threats posed to the highest levels of order are the most profound is complicated to say it another way, by the implicitness of those levels and their invisibility. Furthermore, the structures nested within a given personality may have enough intrinsic strength to stand for a long while after the outer walls that protected them and provided them with structural integrity have been breached and destroyed. The stability of a political or social structure once nested in a damaged religious preconception might be likened to a building standing after an earthquake. Superficially, it looks intact, but one more minor shake may be sufficient to bring it crashing down. The death of God in the modern world looks like an accomplished fact and perhaps an event whose repercussions have not proved fatal but the existential upheaval and philosophical uncertainty characteristic of the first three quarters of the 20th century demonstrate that we have not yet settled back on firm ground. 
our current miraculous state of relative peace and economic tranquility should not blind us to the fact that gaping holes remain in our spirits. The chaos hidden or given form by the establishment of temporal order may re-manifest itself at any time. It may do so in a number of guises of apparent diversity. Any re-emergence of chaos, however, whatever the reason, may be regarded as the same sort of event from the perspective of emotion, motivational significance, or meaning. This is to say that all things that threaten the status quo, regardless of their objective features, tend to be placed into the same natural category as a consequence of their affective identity. The barbarian at the gates is therefore indistinguishable from the heretic within. Both are equivalent to the natural disaster, to the disappearance of the hero, and to the emergent senility of the king. The re-emergence of the dragon of chaos, whatever his form, constitutes the unleashing of dangerous, fear-producing, and promising potential. The different guises of this potential and the reasons for and nature of their equivalents constitute our next topic of discussion. The nature of the response evoked by that potential provides subject matter for the remainder of this audiobook. Particular Forms of Anomaly The Strange, The Stranger, The Strange Idea, and The Revolutionary Hero Anomalous events share capacity to threaten the integrity of the known, to disrupt the familiar and explored. Such events, while differing in their specific details and manner of manifestation, tend to occupy the same natural category. Threats to the stability of cultural tradition emerge in four mythologically inseparable manners. Through rapid natural environmental shift, independent of human activity, through contact with a heretofore isolated foreign culture, through application of novel, revolutionary, linguistically or episodically mediated critical skill, the inevitable consequence of increasing ability to abstract, learn, and communicate, and, finally, as a consequence of revolutionary, heroic activity. The natural human tendency to respond to the stranger, the strange idea, and the creative individual with fear and aggression can be more easily comprehended once it is understood that these diverse phenomena share categorical identity with the natural disaster. The problem with this natural response pattern, however, is that the upsetting capacity of the anomalous is simultaneously the vital source of interest, meaning, and individual strength. Furthermore, the ability to upset ourselves, to undermine and revitalize our own beliefs, is an intrinsic, necessary, and divine aspect of the human psyche, part of the seminal word itself. The word, in its guise as painstakingly abstracted action and object, can create new worlds and destroy old, can pose an unbearable threat to seemingly stable cultures, and can redeem those that have become senescent, inflexible, and paralytic. 
To those who have sold their souls to the group, however, the word is indistinguishable from the enemy. The Strange Transformation of environmental circumstances, as the consequence of purely natural causes, constitutes the single most immediately evident cause for the deterioration of cultural stability. Prolonged drought, floods, earthquakes, plagues, nature's most horrifying and arbitrary occurrences are capable of rendering the most carefully adapted societies impotent at a single blow. Natural disasters of this sort might merely be considered rapid transformation, situations where previously noted affectively relevant environmental relationships alter faster than adaptive movement keeps pace. This means that the insufficiency of cultural adaptation cannot easily be distinguished from natural catastrophe. A society light on its feet, so to speak, is constantly in a position to adapt to the unexpected, even the catastrophic, and to transform such change into something beneficial. Consider, for example, the post-war Japanese. The relationship natural disaster slash cultural adaptation therefore constitutes the social analog to that obtaining between emotion and cognition. Affect generated in large part as a consequence of novelty always emerges where something is not known and is therefore always dependent on what is known, is always experienced in relationship to some conceptualization of the present, the future, and the means to get from one to the other. What constitutes novelty, then, is dependent on what is not novel in a particular circumstance. What constitutes trauma depends, likewise, on the behavioral repertoire and value schema available for use at the time of a given event or transformation. A blizzard that would incapacitate Washington for a month barely makes the residents of Montreal blink. Mythic representations of the rapid mutation of environmental contingency, portrayed as the reappearance of the Great Mother or the Dragon of Chaos, are in consequence necessarily contaminated with images of the sterile, senescent, or tyrannical king whose inflexibility renders all inevitable environmental transformation deadly. When is a disaster not a disaster? When the community is prepared to respond appropriately. Conversely, any minor change in the natural world might be regarded as terminal, catastrophic, and actually be so when the adaptive structure designed to fit that world has become so authoritarian that any change whatsoever is reflexively deemed forbidden, heretical. A society with this attitude, such as the former Soviet Union, is an accident waiting to happen. An interesting example of the consequences of such inflexibility on the personal scale is offered by Thomas Kuhn. In a psychological experiment that deserves to be far better known outside the trade, Bruner and Postman asked experimental subjects to identify on short and controlled exposure a series of playing cards. Many of the cards were normal, but some were made anomalous. For example, a red six of spades and a black four of hearts. 
Each experimental run was constituted by the display of a single card to a single subject in a series of gradually increased exposures. After each exposure, the subject was asked what he had seen, and the run was terminated by two successive correct identifications. Even on the shortest exposures, many subjects identified most of the cards, and after a small increase, all the subjects identified them all. For the normal cards, these identifications were usually correct, but the anomalous cards were almost always identified, without apparent hesitation or puzzlement, as normal. The black four of hearts might, for example, be identified as the four of either spades or hearts. Without any awareness of trouble, it was immediately fitted to one of the conceptual categories prepared by prior experience. One would not even like to say that the subjects had seen something different from what they identified. With a further increase of exposure to the anomalous cards, subjects did begin to hesitate and to display awareness of anomaly. Exposed, for example, to the red six of spades, some would say, that's the six of spades, but there's something wrong with it. The black has a red border. Further increase of exposure resulted in still more hesitation and confusion until finally, and sometimes quite suddenly, most subjects would produce the correct identification without hesitation. Moreover, after doing this with two or three of the anomalous cards, they would have little further difficulty with the others. A few subjects, however, were never able to make the requisite adjustment of their categories. Even at 40 times the average exposure required to recognize normal cards for what they were, more than 10% of the anomalous cards were not correctly identified. And the subjects who then failed often experienced acute personal distress. One of them exclaimed, I can't make the suit out, whatever it is. It didn't even look like a card that time. I don't know what color it is now, or whether it's a spade or a heart. I'm not even sure now what a spade looks like. My God! Myth and literature constantly represent the parched kingdom. The society victimized most frequently by drought, which is the absence of water, concretely, and the water of life or spirit, symbolically brought on by the over-prolonged dominance of the once-great ruling idea. This idea in the narrative, and frequently in actuality, is the king, the ancestral spirit, representative of his people, made tyrannical by age, pride, or unbearable disappointment, withering under the influence of some willfully misunderstood, malevolent advising force. The development of such an unpleasant and dangerous situation calls, of course, for the entrance of the hero, the lost son of the true king, raised in secrecy by alternative parents, the rightful ruler of the kingdom whose authority was undermined or who was supposedly killed during vulnerable youth, the proper heir to the throne who had been journeying in far-off lands and was presumed dead. The hero overturns the tyrant and regains his proper place. The gods, pleased by the re-establishment of proper order, 
allow the rain once more to fall or stop it from falling in dangerous excess. In a story of this type, the creative aspect of the unknown nature is locked away metaphorically by the totalitarian opinion of the current culture. Such a state of affairs might be represented, for example, by the sleeping princess in the kingdom brought to a standstill, or by some alternative variant of the existence of the treasure hard to attain. Paralyzed by patriarchal despotism, or frequently by fear of the terrible mother, the kingdom remains stagnant, while the princess, nature in her benevolent guise, waits for the kiss of the hero to wake. Her awakened and revitalized beauty subsequently reanimates her people. Rituals of the death and renewal of the king act out this transformation of cultural adaptation long before the concept of rebirth can be rendered abstractly comprehensible. Northrop Fry states, The hypothetical ritual studied in Fraser's Golden Bough may be vulnerable enough in various anthropological contexts, but as a mythical structure, it is as solid as the pyramids. Here, a king regarded as divine is put to death at the height of his powers for fear that his physical weakening will bring a corresponding impotence to the fertility of the land he rules. When sacrificed, the divine king is immediately replaced by a successor and his body is then eaten and his blood drunk in a ritual ceremony. We have to make a rather violent effort of visualization to see that there are now two bodies of the divine king, one incarnate in the successor, the other concealed in the bellies of his worshippers. The latter causes the society to become, through eating and drinking the same person, integrated into a single body, which is both their own and his. The extensive and universal corpus of dying and resurrecting god-myths acted in sacrificial ritual dramatized two notions. The first is that the actual ideas slash patterns of behavior governing adaptation must die and be reborn to ensure constant update of the techniques of survival. The second, more fundamental, is that the hero the active agent of adaptation, must eternally upset the protective structure of tradition and enter into sacrificial union with the re-emergent unknown. Cosmological phenomena themselves act out, are utilized as descriptive tools for, more accurately, this eternal drama. The sun god, born in the east, dies in the west and passes into the underworld of night, into the lair of the dragon of chaos. Nightly, the sun hero battles the terrible forces of chaos, cuts himself out of the belly of the beast, and is reborn, triumphant, in the morning. The master of the strange in its natural form is the hero in his technological guise, more particularly, say, than in his role as social revolutionary. Marduk, who faced Tiamat in single combat, is a very focused representative of man's mastery over nature. The pattern of action signified by this god, that is, courageous and creative approach in the face of uncertainty, 
was regarded unconsciously by the Mesopotamians as necessary, as stated previously, to the creation of ingenious things from the conflict with Tiamat. The hero fashions defenses out of nature to use against nature. This idea, which underlies man's cultural adaptation, manifests itself naturally in the human psyche. Spontaneous fantasy manifested August 10, 1997, by my daughter Michaela, age five years, eight months, while playing Prince and Princess with Julian, her three-year-old brother. Dad, if we killed a dragon, we could use his skin as armor, couldn't we? Wouldn't that be a good idea? The hero uses the positive aspect of the great mother as protection from her negative counterpart. In this manner, the natural disaster is kept at bay, or, better yet, transformed from a crisis into an opportunity. The Stranger Arrival of the Stranger, concretely presented in mythology, constitutes a threat to the stability of the kingdom, metaphorically indistinguishable from that posed by environmental transformation. The stable meaning of experiential events, constrained by the hierarchical structure of group identity, is easily disrupted by the presence of the other, who practically poses a concrete threat to the stability of the present dominance structure, and who more abstractly, as his actions contain his moral tradition, exists as the literal embodiment of challenges to the a priori assumptions guiding belief. The stranger does not act in the manner expected. His inherent unpredictability renders him indistinguishable from the unknown as such and easily identified with the force constantly working to undermine order. From a within-group perspective, so to speak, such identification is not purely arbitrary either, as the mere existence of the successful stranger poses serious threat to the perceived utility of the general culture, and, therefore, to its ability to inhibit existential terror and provide determinant meaning to action. When the members of one isolated group come into contact with the members of another, the stage is therefore set for trouble. Each culture, each group, evolved to protect its individual members from the unknown, from the abysmal forces of the great and terrible mother, from unbearable affect itself. Each evolved to structure social relationships and render them predictable, to provide a goal and the means to attain it. All cultures provide their constituent individuals with particular modes of being in the face of terror and uncertainty. All cultures are stable, integrated, hierarchically arranged structures predicated upon assumptions held as absolute. But the particular natures of these assumptions differ, at least at the more comprehensible and conscious levels of analysis. Every culture represents an idiosyncratic paradigm a pattern of behaving in the face of the unknown, and the paradigm cannot be shifted, its basic axioms cannot be modified, without dramatic consequences, without dissolution, metaphoric death, prior to potential reconstruction. Every society provides protection from the unknown. 
The unknown itself is a dangerous thing, full of unpredictability and threat. Chaotic social relationships, destructured dominance hierarchies, create severe anxiety and dramatically heighten the potential for interpersonal conflict. Furthermore, the dissolution of culturally determined goals renders individual life identified with those goals meaningless and unrewarding in intrinsic essence. It is neither reasonable nor possible to simply abandon a particular culture which is a pattern of general adaptation just because someone else comes along who does things a different way, whose actions are predicated on different assumptions. It is no simple matter to rebuild social relationships in the wake of new ideas. It is no straightforward process, furthermore, to give up a goal, a central unifying and motivating idea. Identification of an individual with a group means that individual psychological stability is staked on maintenance of group welfare. If the group founders suddenly as a consequence of external circumstance or internal strife, the individual is laid bare to the world, his social context disappears, his reason for being vanishes, he is swallowed up by the unbearable unknown, and he cannot easily survive. Nietzsche states, in an age of disintegration that mixes races indiscriminately, human beings have in their bodies the heritage of multiple origins, that is, opposite, and often not merely opposite, drives and value standards that fight each other and rarely permit each other any rest. Such human beings of late cultures and refracted lights will on the average be weaker human beings, their most profound desire is that the war they are should come to an end. Of course, the unstated conclusion to Nietzsche's observation is that the war typifying the person of mixed race, mixed culture in more modern terminology, is the affectively unpleasant precursor to the state of mind characterizing the more thoroughly integrated individual who has won the war. This victor, who has organized the currently warring diverse cultural standpoints into a hierarchy integrated once more, will be stronger than his unicultural predecessor, as his behavior and values will be the consequence of the more diverse and broader-ranging union of heretofore separate cultures. It is reasonable to presuppose that it was the unconscious consideration of the potentially positive outcome of such mixing that led Nietzsche to the revelation of the dawning future Superman. It is not the mere existence of various previously separated presuppositions in a single psyche that constitutes the post-contact victory, however. This means that the simplistic promotion of cultural diversity as panacea is likely to produce anomie, nihilism, and conservative backlash. It is the molding of these diverse beliefs into a single hierarchy that is preconditioned for the peaceful admixture of all. This molding can only be accomplished by war conducted between paradoxical elements within the post-contact individual psyche. Such a war is so difficult so emotionally upsetting and cognitively challenging 
that murder of the anomalous other in the morally acceptable guise of traditional war frequently seems a comforting alternative. Fundamental threats can be posed very easily between groups of people. Most concretely, foreign behaviors are threatening, unpredictable in particular, terrifying in general, because essential beliefs, challenging beliefs, are most convincingly expressed through actions. He became to us a reproof of our thoughts. The very sight of him is a burden to us, because his manner of life is unlike that of others, and his ways are strange. Wisdom 2.14-15 A foreign man, a stranger, is threatening because he is not firmly fixed within a social hierarchy and may therefore behave unpredictably with unpredictable consequences for the social hierarchy. Signals of safety and threat vary or may vary between members of different groups. Unpredictable means potentially dangerous. More abstractly, what the stranger believes specifically threatens the integrated structure of historically determined belief in general. This does not pose a problem when his foreign actions or ideas do not produce fundamental conflict, do not threaten key beliefs. When basic concepts are threatened, however, the unbearable, terrible unknown once again rises up and once firm ground begins to give way.